Um, good morning. Thank you so much for coming. I'm very excited to be talking about this. Interviewing is my favorite part of making a story. Sadly, they make me make stories after I interview, but I, this is my very favorite part of it. So I'm excited to talk about it. I'm really passionate in particular about, now I sound like a Tinder profile. Uh, <laughs> I like long walks on the beach and interviewing for narrative um, because I feel like I tend to do stories about really nerdy, wonky things. Um, and so I think narrative is just a really great way to convince people to go along for the ride when you're trying to teach them something. I think it's also just an incredible way to connect people with other people that they would not prefer to connect with. Um, so let's jump right into it. Um, so a long time ago, I did a story. I spent obsessively studying uh, the United States first interrogation training program, which was in World War II, much less brutal, fortunately. Um, and I actually found that some of the techniques that they taught in the interrogation training manual are relevant to interviewing. <laughs> um, I just want to start out by saying something that's kind of obvious, which is all of the things we're going to talk about today depend on who you're talking to, right? And the point is to be able to go into an interview with a couple of things in your pocket to be able to assess who is this person and how do I, how do I get things out of them. Um, I do not suggest stampeding or hypnotizing, maybe irritating, actually, charming, lulling people. The more resourceful that you can be, the more resourceful that you can get information. So obviously, questions are the main tool that we use to get people to talk to us. And I want to just, a lot of what I'll be talking about today is designing questions and talking to people, giving them a question that they can bounce, solidly bounce off of, right? I think beget is the right word in this situation. Um, it's a Bible word that means that it's like your child. So like the answer is the child of your question. So think about what are you giving them to bounce off of to create a good answer for you, right? I am going to give you an example of a terrible question that I asked just to illustrate the point. Um, I was doing a story about a very good friend of mine who happened to have committed something like 62 felony burglaries. And none of our friend group at the time had any idea that he was doing this. He was slightly infamous. He was called the Spider-Man burglar in San Francisco because he would climb up on top of buildings and figure out like truly creative, I have to say, ways to get into buildings like shimmy down on vacuum cords. Um, and I had never quite understood what had driven him to this life of crime. He was in many, many ways not, there was just no way to suspect that he would have done this. I did so many interviews with this poor guy and I was not getting to the point which is like, tell me why, <laughs> tell me why this happened. Um, and so I'm gonna play a question from the interview where you will not be able to tell unless I tell you that I'm trying to ask him like, how did you become this person? After this interview, I was at This American Life at the time, Ira told me, like, you have to confront your friend um, or we're going to kill the story. And you'll be able to tell why. So. Yeah, for some reason, the other thing that, um, that came to mind when I learned this was there was this moment, there was like a ward campout. We're talking about campouts now. There's basically no way you'll remember this. I'd be surprised if you did. But there was a ward camp out, and I am notoriously always lost. But you guys, you and Julianne were already at the camp out, and you were 
telling me like where to go and I was in front or something like that or I was in front which should never happen I should never be leading the way but I was leading the way and at some point you're supposed to turn left which unsurprisingly I did not and um, so you guys were behind me and I was going and I I went straight and you're supposed to turn left and you you followed me all the way down the mountain just to tell me that I had gone the wrong direction and that was so, I don't know why, but that's what came to mind. I was like, that's so thoughtful. Like, I would have figured it out. Obviously, I would have turned around. But for some reason, Still talking. it sticks in my head. And um, so, yeah. So when you told me the backpack story. Yeah, great question, right? <laughs> Do you, did you hear a question in there? There was no question in there. That was me trying to say, like, you're so great. How did you also, how are you also this person? Not very well. So as I mentioned, Ira was like, either you talk to this person like a human being or like a professional interviewer, or we kill the story. Um, Unsurprisingly, this is how he responded to my question. I actually, I do remember that because I rarely go on campouts. I actually really dislike Now we're talking about (laughs) campouts. And it was a really dark road and super windy through through those tall trees. Yeah, no, I definitely remember that. That is an appropriate answer to the question I asked, right? <laughs> so finally, I sat down, and um, I have to say, before I play this, I want to say one of the ways to get people to give you good answers is to be incredibly direct. And I want to say that being direct with somebody, even if you feel like they've done something that that is harmful or wrong in whatever terms that you think. I think one of the kindest things that you can do is be direct with them, actually. Before this, we had been playing this as kind of like a romp and all these funny things that he had done, which did not portray his complete contrition about what he had done. And that would not be fair to put that on the radio, because he was very repentant in the way, if I hadn't asked him directly, he he was giving me sort of platitudinal answers. Um, and so I think it's actually one of the kindest things you can do is to just give them a chance to answer in a more direct way. Okay, here's direct, Karen. I don't recall taking a step back, just asking myself, what the heck are you doing? How's that possible? Like, how is it possible that at no point were you like, what am I doing? That's a good question. I, I, I'm not really sure. What I know is I didn't want to look at it, honestly. I think that was such a frightening thought to even look into that chasm um, because there wasn't another option. It was just keep doing this and do as many of these as you have to to get some money so that you can go back to the casino. And this time, like this time, maybe you can win enough money so that you can stop doing this. But there were so many other options, actually. No, it's true. Um, I I think um, I wanted the easiest way possible. I mean, I I certainly wanted to take the path of least resistance. But do you hear what you're saying? (laughs) Because the path of least resistance does not include climbing through skylights. That's not the path of least resistance. It's true. Um, it took a lot to get me there. That wasn't something that I was just like, I just wanted to go do. But once I was there, that 
became the path of least resistance. I'm going to stop it there, but we this eventually turned into a really meaningful conversation about his addictions, also about his identity. He was very, we talked a lot about with him about how he was born in Korea and adopted into a family in the whitest town in Iowa. And so he spent his whole growing up life trying to hide who he was, and this turned into this complex. Anyway, it became a much more fruitful conversation where we got much more to the heart of what was going on with him. So, all right. So let's jump into I'm going to be, for a couple of minutes, I'm going to sort of like clinically take apart, like, what is it that we're looking for? I think it's easy to think that, because we've heard good stories and we've fallen in love with good stories, to be like, I'll, I'll just know it when I see it, right? Like, I'll sit in the interview and I'll feel something. But I want to talk about, I think that there are things that we can do before the interview and during the interview that will allow us to know what we're looking for, right? And at the very highest level, what you're looking for is a person with something at stake who does something or something happens to them that raises a bigger idea or something that you learn and changes the person. And a decision that I'm constantly making uh, before interviews and during the interview is where should I sit? Where should I skim and where should I skip? And I think if you know what you're looking for, you're able to make that decision a lot, a lot more easily. And, and the part of this that I want to zoom in on the most is the stakes. I think when a story is, uh, even if it's a story about something you care about, like an issue you care about, and you're like, I'm not feeling it, I, I technically care about the environment, but I'm not feeling this story, I think that has to do with whoever is telling the story not having breathed life into the stakes. So I want to talk a little bit about stakes. Um, the other thing, actually, I want to say is a person who changes. If the person is exactly the same at the end of the story as they were at the first, you haven't really gone on an arc with them. So, And that's, in, that's encased a little bit in the stakes as well, though. OK, what do we mean by stakes? After this, I'm going to jump into some examples, and we'll get a lot more practical, but just I'm, these are the things I'm thinking about before I go into an interview. I'm not directly asking these questions, but these are the kinds of things I'm looking for. What is this story about about? Not just like, what's it about? Technically, that was a story about someone who committed a lot of felony burglaries. But it was about about addiction. It was about about identity. So what's the big idea that you're trying to, to, to share with your audience? And then where does that concretely show up in the world? Um, I teach documentary audio to graduate students. And a lot of them will come and be like, I want to talk about like the environment. And they'll be very, very high level and sort of vague. And I'll say, you got to find out somewhere the thing that you care about, where does it show up concretely in the world? And then even as you're telling the story, I'm constantly thinking about, like, where does this show up? And then what do people need to know just to flat out understand the story? So for clarity's sake, like plot, here's what happened. Um, I did a story about gerrymandering. I have to explain to you what gerrymandering is. And then what do I have to tell people in order for them to care? And this is where we get more to the stakes. Um, I was a theater nerd in high school. And as our theater coach would teach us how to like, become a character, the main thing she would ask us is, what does the person want? And so I would ask that of my characters and stories too. What do they want? Um, what are the odds that they'll get it? What are the things standing in the way of them getting it? What happens if they get it or don't get it? Even if someone gets what they want, they usually have to give something up. Um, I like thinking about things like that because that gives contours to what otherwise might be like a positive story. You want to give it some shape. Um, who matters to whether they get it? What's their relationship to that person? Stakes show up in relationships. 
And how will I know if they're succeeding? Like, what are the signs of success or failure very specifically to that world? And this is a thing that I think about a lot, which is making somebody, making your listeners an insider in the world of that story. And uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. I was raised in the Mormon church, and I eventually left the Mormon church. And the way that my parents knew that I had left was because I, had, I didn't tell them directly. You've heard me be indirect. That's how I was with my parents about this. Um, they saw, I went home for Christmas, and I bent over, and they could see that I was not wearing the Mormon. Mormons wear special undergarments, and they could see that I wasn't. Like, if you're a regular human who has never met a Mormon in the world, it means nothing to you if you see that, right? But my parents are very, very Mormon, so they see that and they know something, right? Uh, Mormons also don't drink coffee. So if I were to walk into a Mormon church with a coffee cup, that means something to everybody in the room, to all the people who understand the Mormon community, right? So you're looking for details about the people and about the world of the story that you're talking about that make them an insider, because that's, that's where you feel the stakes of a story, is when you feel that insider-ness. And I'm gonna give you an example from a story that I did. Um, if you're trying to figure out what do people need to understand both for clarity and to care, you might pick a turning point in the story and back it out from there. Um, and I'm gonna give you an example. I'm not gonna tell you what this story is about. I'm just gonna play this. This is a very significant turning point in the story. One day I was reading Quran and I was sitting in my office waiting for my students to come to teach them how to drive. Uh, and someone called me and said, hi, I'm a taxi driver. I brought something from someone that I have to give it to you. And I went there and there was a box. And uh, when I opened the box, uh, there was a dessert. And I, when I opened the, the, the paper, uh, it was from Cameron. He said, uh, Ahmed, happy birthday. It was, it was really made me nervous. And I couldn't say, oh, Cameron, thank you. Or Cameron, I hate you. OK, this is a man named Ahmed who just got a box of baklava from his brother for his birthday. That is a neutral situation until you understand the context of what's going on, right? So if I'm thinking about what do you need to understand to know that what sounds super normal is actually a huge turning point. Um, for starters, just for context, he lives in Kurdistan, which at the time, this was 2010, I believe. It was a relatively safe area of Iraq. And this baklava is actually an act of rebellion and an invitation to a quite risky new life. And what you need to know about that is that this is the first time Ahmed had ever in his life been told happy birthday um, because his family doesn't celebrate birthdays because of their religion. Ahmed is the youngest brother in a very hierarchical family and society. He, he's, and he's also like, I'm also the youngest, so I really related to him. He was like, I'm just gonna do the things that make the people happy, that's how we're gonna do this. He was working at the time at his older brother. His older brother was very religious and he was working at his driving school and he was also very religious. And the baklava is from his other older brother, Kamran. And Kamran is the family rebel. He had become a photographer. Um, he got kicked out of the family. He started Iraq's first ever um, photo agency to teach Iraqis how to do professional photography. Um, 
And Kamran basically raised Ahmed. So when he gets this baklava, it's not just a birthday gift. It's Kamran saying, like, are you, gonna are you gonna come into my life or stay in the life that you are in? And this kicks off an entire series of events, right? I wanna give one more example of what I mean by these small sort of contextual insider details. If anyone's heard the podcast Heavyweight, it's, based, it's the premise of it is that Jonathan Goldstein goes back into people's lives and helps them fix something, basically. I am going to ruin this episode for you, and for that, I apologize. <laughs> There's major spoiler alerts, plugins, if you don't want to hear it. This guy, I think his name was Steve. Um, he was a heroin addict, and during his, uh, the height of his addiction, he had basically stolen everything that his father prized, including this gun. And at the end of the story, his father, for very complicated legal reasons, ends up having to be, he, they eventually track down the gun, the guy doesn't want to give back the gun, and the father is the only one who can legally ask for the gun back for gun regulation laws. Which is great, he got the gun back, but it's even more significant when you understand this tiny detail that he throws at the front end of the story. Did your dad know what was going on? I mean, my dad is a very unique person. He's kind of like chronically petrified of direct conversations. You know, I remember even as a kid, he would have me order the pizza, you know, when we were ordering a pizza or something like that because he didn't want to talk to the person on the phone. So the fact that his dad had to be the one to call this guy who really did not want to give the gun back and ask for this gun back becomes even more significant because, you know, this teeny tiny, very concrete thing about him, which is... I love that he didn't just say, my dad is shy. He said, my dad doesn't like to talk to the pizza guy, which is like the most transaction. I'm from New York. It's the most transactional thing that you do in a day, right? So just these tiny insider details that turn up the volume on the stakes is what I'm talking about. Okay, so what happens next after Ahmed receives this baklava? A couple of years later, he does go and start working with Kamran. He eventually also gets kicked out of the family, and then Kamran gets kidnapped by ISIS. And at that point, this obviously becomes a different story, and that's the story that we told. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, so what happens when your story has obvious big stakes, like a kidnapping, a hostage rescue mission, the government stopped looking for him, his family and friends had to look for him instead. Um, it's easy in a situation like that to make the stakes be like a kidnapping and a rescue mission, right? That is a little bit too distant for you to feel and engage with, especially because very, very tragically, so we started reporting on this from about a year after he was kidnapped for about four years after that. Um, we couldn't, he was never found, so we could never talk to Cameron, so we didn't know what was happening. We, there were some calls from ISIS, so we had those recorded, but we didn't know a lot about what was happening on the other end, so this story, by its nature, also had to be about something that wasn't as big as ISIS. And if, you know, this is what it would have been tempting to be. Like, you have ISIS kind of in the background, you have the search team, but we're really going to talk about the kidnapping and the search. And we tried making that. I made this for a podcast called Rough Translation. But the place that it actually came to alive was in Ahmed, the little brother. Because Ahmed, this like, I don't know, kind of guy who wanted to be like a musician and move to Germany. His brothers lived in Germany. He was going to be a musician. Instead, steps up and eventually, through some bumblings, becomes the leader of the search team. And he's negotiating with ISIS. He's meeting with leaders in Iraq. He eventually takes over 
Cameron's photo agency and runs it even more successfully than Cameron did. So that is a journey. I can follow Ahmed's journey. I can care about Ahmed. And in the background of his story, I'm also learning about the kidnapping. I'm learning about the search. I'm learning about ISIS. So making, finding the place where the thing you want to talk about really concretely shows up in the world, and you can tell the story at that level. OK, so if we know this about this situation, where am I going to sit, skim, or skip, um, both in preparation and in the interview? Well, I do need to know a little bit, because of the kidnapping, I need to know a little bit about Kurdistan and that it was a relatively safe region in Iraq. That tiny aspect of it, for people who are not familiar with Iraq, makes the kidnapping just a tiny bit more significant because they had been going along thinking that everything would be safe, right? So that turns up the volume a little bit on that. I need to know a lot about why the new life that he's being invited to is risky. I need to know a lot about the family structure, who are the other people in the family, what's, what, what are the rules of this family, right? What, who are people in relationship to each other? I do need to know a little bit about the older religious brother, but he's not going to be at the forefront of this story. But I, I need to skim that, at least. And then I need to know a lot about Kamran. And I need to know a lot about his relationship with Ahmed um, so that the stakes will come to life. So that was a very clinical breakdown of how you might take a turning point and just back out, like, where do I need to focus in this story? So the baklava is a thing for me that I look for a lot. And I think about it as a mascot. I'm constantly looking for something that is a mascot for the big idea. So for example, I did a story about gerrymandering. And of course, it was so a guy named Chris Jankowski. I'll play a little bit of tape from him later. He had figured out that if you control state legislatures, they are the, that's who draws the district maps for the national congressional elections. So if you control state legislatures, you control the national elections, basically. And he was talking about state politics, like which the only thing more boring than gerrymandering is state politics. And, but, but he started talking about them as the junior varsity team. And he started, it became clear as we were talking that he had this real chip on his shoulder that nobody cares about state politics. So all of a sudden, when he says junior varsity, I'm like, we're talking about an underdog here. We're talking about like someone who has a chip on his shoulder. All of a sudden, this story that is the wonkiest of wonky stories has personal stakes. Can Chris Jankowski do this terrible thing, which he did, um, and you know, take over national politics? Um, so sometimes it's a concept like junior varsity. Sometimes it's an actual physical thing like the baklava. And I'm going to play. This is my favorite mascot of all time. Um, I was doing a story about prisoners of war that were held in America. Uh, there were about 1,000 prisoner of war camps in the United States during World War II, so mostly German soldiers sent over here. And the surprising thing about this story, sadly, was that the United States treated these prisoners so well, that was the surprise, um, that Congress did two investigations into the coddling of prisoners of war. And so we were trying to find a way to bring to life like what was going on in these camps that Congress would be so enraged that we were doing so, so kindly. Um, and this is from one of the prisoners who was being held in one of the camps. It's from Radio Lab, so there will be some sound design. <laughs> the prisoners washed up, and then the guards opened up the cafeteria. Then we got to eat good things. This is Walter Feldholter. He was another prisoner at Aliceville. We got a piece of white bread, of you American white bread, and we got peanut butter. I didn't know what, it, what peanut was. 
and it tasted wonderful, wonderful. It was the best dinner I ever had. And I always, when I think on the good times, then I think on peanut butter. <laughs> right? So you can, it's something concrete that I can hang everything else on. It's just like a thing I can carry with me. And especially in audio, when they can't look at something, when they can't flip the pages back, I want to give them something concrete that's like, OK, that's the big idea. I can hold on to that through the story. So I even have a mascot for my mascots, which is concentrated orange juice. Um, I'm the youngest of seven kids, and so everything in our house was either like powdered milk or concentrated orange juice or powdered eggs. So I think about the mascots as the thing that's like the concentrated orange juice of the story. It's the like tightly packed thing that like from which everything else becomes something bigger, right? So if you need a mascot for your mascots, think concentrated orange juice. I am full of really good metaphors. Okay, let's jump into the story. So let's jump into the interview. So that's, those are, that was mostly things like what I'm thinking about as I'm preparing for the interview. And I wanna say, pre prepare, prepare. Like, take this, like, go from what you think the big idea is, and I write out questions, I put the questions in buckets. Of course, when I get in the interview, I'm gonna be flexible about where it goes, but at least I kinda know where I'm going. One other thing that I'll do with my students is I'll ask them to imagine like three different ways, especially if they don't know a lot about the person or situation they're going into, is like, what, is, what are three ways this could possibly go? And they're just making it up, it's fiction. But the reason why I have them do that is so that their mind, so that they just start thinking like of the range of possibilities for what's going, what might happen in that story, and they think of more creative questions. So. Um, okay, so but once I get into the interview, I'm thinking about setting a tone. Um, because what you're asking people to do in a narrative interview, you're asking them to be open and expressive. And it's your job to help them feel safe, to help them feel to know where they are and what they're doing. So I do a couple of things in the beginning of the interview. Um, you're asking them to be a human, so you should be a human as well. Um, this was an interview I was doing with someone who was coming in to talk about a very wonky Supreme Court case. So it was destined to be dry. And when he first came in, he said that his wife had come with him. And did your wife get in okay too? Yeah, yeah, she's outside with her. We, she had a baby last week, so really, wow. we're all we're all here. Wow, is this a first child or this is a fourth? Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm the youngest of seven children. Oh, wow. So. All right, we've got a ways to go. Yeah. <laughs> I can't decide whether I recommend it or not. <laughs> I'll give you my parents' number. It's just chit-chat. It's small talk. But I'm modeling, like, this is who we're going to be in this interview. I'm going to tell you I have six siblings. I'll give you my whatever. Um, so when they model for them the behavior that you want, which is hu being a human, I also start by giving them a little bit of power. An interview is a natural huge power imbalance. They are trusting you with their story and hoping that you will do something good with it, fair or honest or accurate. And so at the beginning of every single interview, I ask, do you have any questions for me? Before I ask questions of you, do you have any questions for me? If it's a very sensitive topic, there are things that I will do. I will grant them a lot more leeway. Um, I will say, if we talk about anything in this interview and you think about it later and you're concerned, we, we can have a conversation about that. I will literally say to people who are telling me sensitive things, this does not apply to public officials, but I will say, I know that your life goes on after, this is a story for me and it's gonna end, but your life is gonna go on and my story is gonna live out there and it could impact your life and I get that. 
So if something happens in this interview that you're concerned about, we can have a conversation about that. I never, 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 never promise that I will not use it, but I will say we can have a conversation about it. I want to give them a little bit of power back in this situation. I also want to give them context. I always ask, do you know what Planet Money is? Even if they say yes, I still tell them. I also, in terms of giving context and direction, I might say, I might tell them, here's what I'm trying, here's what this story is about, here's what I'm hoping that I might get from you. Do not be afraid to give people a little bit of direction. They are not professional talkers, usually, and so they want to know why they're there and what you want from them. So I think it gives them some relief to know that you know what you're looking for and you're a little bit in charge. And then the last thing I would say is to ease into it, meaning that my first questions are usually sort of throwaway questions, but also slightly innocuously personal. Because again, I'm trying to get them into a different headspace. So one of the first things that I might that I ask in almost every interview is some version of, like, did you grow up wanting to to gerrymander the country? Like, did <laughs> did 10-year-old you dream of one day like taking over state politics? Which is a ridiculous question, but it does a couple of things. It tells them this is the interview you're in for. <laughs> it's a little bit more personal. And honestly, making them go back to like 10-year-old Chris Jankowski puts him in just a different kind of reflective headspace. Sometimes you actually get good stuff out of it. Um, I'm not going to play this example, but there's a woman who was doing a project where she um, was working with flush toilets. And she told, when I asked her this question, she said, I've been thinking about flush toilets since I was a kid. Like when I went to New York, I just looked at the skyscrapers and thought, how did they flush all those toilets? <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So you have set a tone. And then the basic building blocks of every single narrative interview is just chronology. Chronology. What? Okay, and then what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? So most of the beginning of my interviews is just like, and then what happened? And then what happened? But what's going on while they're telling me what happened is I'm assessing like, who is this person? What? What? Who's? Who am I in an interview with? So that I can adjust accordingly. Is this a rambler? Is this someone who just does not like to speak in complete sentences? Like, what do I need to do to adjust to this person? So some of the beginning questions, again, are sort of designed for me to listen, but also assess. So for example, in this gerrymandering story, I found this guy, Jim Schatz, who is the sweetest human ever born. And he was one of the people who um, Chris Jankowski targeted his election in this tiny town in Maine, very local election. And Chris Jankowski got people to distribute campaign flyers that said Jim had canceled the local fireworks. And Jim lost his election so that they could get the state, uh, take over the state legislature. So anyway, I wanted to try to figure out who this Jim Schatz guy was. And so this is the very first, this is the opening of the interview as I'm trying to figure out like, who am I talking to? You, if you want to tell me where we are right now. So we're in Blue Hill, the Blue Hill town office, in the Sleckman's office. Um, this is it. Man, I'm in for an interview, right? <laughs> like, not expressive. Um, but then something happens, even when someone is not expressive, that is who they are. And Jim was kind of a quiet, meek guy. And he says this thing, um, and this is the, the next point I want to make, is that like when I'm going into an interview, I'm also, the other thing I'm scanning for in addition to mascots and things like that is personality tape. What's the concentrated orange juice tape of who this person is? And so Jim says this thing to me um, pretty soon after we sat down. Okay. Tell me a little bit about where we just came from also. Also, 
uh, today being Mother's Day, uh, the Grange, uh, of which I'm a member, uh, was holding their Mother's Day brunch, and I was, uh, I, I usually do a lot of the cooking, and that's where, where we were and where I was, and and hopefully we had a chance to have brunch. Did, did you did you get there in time? Or? I ate right before. It was very sweet and it was very gym to just be like, are, are, you okay? are you okay? And then later on I asked him, what is your, do you have a slogan for, for Jim Schatz? And his slogan was vote for Jim. He was like, it's just vote for Jim. Every election, the last eight elections, it's just vote for Jim. And I was like, okay, I have the concentrated orange juice of Jim. So I'm always looking for that tape. Um, and so when, I'm t- but I, when I am talking to someone like Jim, who is not naturally very expressive, I think a lot about how to get them. So I think a lot about getting them to be expressive often starts with getting them to be concrete. So sometimes I will literally say, like, if they're telling me about something that happened 10 years ago, I will say, like, all right, look around the room. Like, in that conference room, who else is in the room? Are you guys on spreadsheets? Or is there a whiteboard? Like, what were you wearing? I don't care about these answers. But what I'm trying to do is get them back into the physical details of that moment. Because the more that they are, once they can get in t- back in touch with, like, the physical moment, a lot of their, the details will, be, will come back to mind, even the emotions, it will get them back in touch with the emotions of that moment. So if I can hear that someone's not going to be very expressive, I will just ask them a bunch of really concrete five senses kinds of questions. With Jim, I brought in the flyers that Chris Jankowski had sent to his um, district, including this one that says, baseball, apple pie, 4th of July, and fireworks, not this 4th of July. Jim Schatz had other priorities. And so as soon as Jim picks this up and he's looking at it, Jim starts feeling some things. And he starts being way more expressive and telling me a lot more about the election because it just like grounded him back in that moment. So if you are met with someone who's not very expressive, I recommend getting them to be concrete first. Um, Okay, so this is another interview I'm in. I'm sitting in the interview and listening to him and I figure out pretty quickly that this guy is a rambler. So I did a story about the death penalty, and this is a guy whose father ran the, the firing squads in Utah for 20 years. And my, what I wanted to know from him, because his father was dead, so I couldn't speak with him, I wanted to understand, like, why does it make sense to you to do this thing? Like, what, is it, what does this thing mean to you? And this is the very opening of this of this interview with him. All right, tell me about him. Okay, yeah, he was he, he kind of looking at his history here. We kind of had some fun. He was hired in 1950, January 1st. We are starting 1950. in the 1950s with and his father. His Literally, he opens his father's personal history and opens to page one. And he's like, in 1950, he was born. And then in 1951, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> like, we, cannot, we cannot do this this whole time. Still going. And so I started thinking about this, like if you scroll through the transcript, I was scrolling through the transcript, it's just like pages of block text. Um, And I, for my part, could and should have done more to stop him, but I was also, I had gotten this interview very last minute and was nervous and did not do a great job of steering it. But also the other thing I wanna say about ramblers is sometimes they just need to get it out of their system. And um, he wanted to defend his father and I get that. Right? I think what he was saying to me was, my dad's a good guy. Like, don't, don't just portray him as like this one-dimensional, still going, um, one-dimensional person. Um, and so I was like, I'm gonna let him get it out of his system. I have time. <laughs> 
So we went through this for a while, and then I started jumping in more. Because as he was talking, I was thinking about, like, where can we make this concrete? On an execution day, I'm going to stop his rambling, because he is still talking. Um, on execution day, there is an execution, but there's a breakfast, right? It's like, they eat something before they go to the jail. Um, and he had told me already that they were a really tight-knit group and that they would spend a lot of time at their house. So I asked him, like, tell me about, about breakfast the morning of an execution. What's a breakfast like that like? Is it quiet? Is it solemn? Are people excited, nervous? These are men that are, are they were more f an extension of great uncles than they were just law enforcement officers. And, and you know, it's just like a little family family breakfast. You know, she'd she'd make coffee and... She would do scones or biscuits and gravy, and she wanted those men to know uh, that it wasn't easy and that she appreciated them. And, you know, I don't think it's an easy, easy decision to be on a firearms committee or a firearms squad, and I, and I, I don't think it's a, a choice that you make lightly. So now I have scones, I have biscuits and gravy, I have coffee, I have people sitting around a table before an execution, and um, so I ha I, it's a little bit more concrete. The next thing that I'm going to flag to be looking for are side doors. Sometimes people will just kind of throw something off while they're talking, and you can and you hear it as like, "Oh, that's a place I should jump off of that thing." And a lot of times, it's like slightly adjacent to the thing that they're talking about. In particular, if they're having trouble being expressive or, or just giving me full-on platitudes, like a stream of platitudes, I'm really listening for side doors. And one thing he said to me, um, he mentioned something about a prayer that they, you know, before they go to the jail, they pray. And I thought, I wonder what's in the prayer. I wonder if I ask him to tell me what's in the prayer, he'll tell me something that's a little bit more real. It's, it's still bordering on platitudes, but it's a smidge more real. And uh, I know that, uh, I know there was a lot of prayerful times around the house when those men were over getting ready. I know that uh, I, I, it's a pretty solemn moment. What's the prayer? Is it for the person being executed, no, the victim? What's the prayer? I think you have to pray for strength to follow through on what you have to do. You know, you, everybody has this opinion that, that if it comes down to it, I could do it no matter what. But but doing and talking are two different things. And I, I think that, you know, you might need a little guidance and you might need a little understanding and, and something bigger than you is out there. And and I, I think you pray for yourself that you do good, but you certainly, I think that that you got to pray for the victims a little bit. And you know, having dealt in corrections as long as I have, I've been on both sides of the families. Uh, you know, uh, there's 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 really more victims in a situation than you realize. That was the first time he said anything to me about the fact that there were people on the other end of that gun, and it's small. But that's the first time he acknowledged that. And then I took that and built on that, and we talked a little bit more about that. Um, two more things really quickly in this interview, and then I'm going to get to a lightning round of things that I use in interviews. Um, another thing that I'm looking for, so another way to give contour to the stakes is to ask contrast questions, right? 
So I said to him, you're, I'm not going to play this because it's slightly rambling, um, but I asked him, your father carried out the most severe punishment that you can possibly carry out. Where have you seen him be merciful? And what I'm not looking for there is a way to redeem his father and say, but he likes his family, right? What I'm looking for is when he tells me where his father was merciful, that tells me something about how he thinks about justice, right? So I'm, I'm asking all the way around the issue. Like, there's the death penalty. Like, he's going to shoot somebody that day. What's happening at breakfast? Like, what's the scene there? Are you praying for the victim? Or are you praying for the person you're shooting? And then, like, tell me something about what you think about justice. If I just said that, I would have gotten just straight up platitudes. But when I asked him this, he gave me some platitudes, but he also gave me a story about how his dad did CPR on a dog. Um, and as his example of where his father was merciful, which was not what I was expecting. Mm. Um, and then lastly, I'm thinking, especially in a situation like this where I'm interviewing someone who is, I know he's defensive of his father and he wants to portray him well. Um, so in this very extensive history that we walked through with him, I noticed that the firing squad was not in the history. And his dad had run the firing squad for 20 years. And so a safe way for him to, safer way for him to answer that question is for me to put it in his dad's terms. So I said to him, your dad, I noticed that your dad is proud of a lot of things in his life. Um, why do you think he didn't put the firing squad in there? Um, and his answer was probably the most nuanced that I got back from him, which had something to do with, um, I think it hurt his heart. And it was the first time that he said anything like that to me. He said he wasn't not proud of it, but I think that it hurt his heart. And he talked a little bit more, more about that. So finding a way to help somebody answer a difficult question, I don't, is not always the right thing to do. Sometimes the right thing to do is just to be straight up direct. But I knew that was going to get me platitudes in this situation. All right. So being concrete, looking for side doors, contrast, and then helping people feel safe to answer your questions. <laughs> I am not going to go very much into this example. Um, but I want to point to a couple of things. Um, so this was the gerrymandering story that I've been referencing. In this situation, it's something that's so big and so wonky that, again, I'm looking for a way to make it personal. And so the very first thing that I asked him was, and this is something I want to point out, which is especially when this, something seems obvious, we forget to ask about it. And he clearly is a very ardent Republican. But I wanted to know, like, what does it mean to you to be a Republican? And so that was one of the first questions that I asked him. And I got back an interesting answer that I did not expect. All right. Well, let's start out with who you are and what you do. My name is Chris Jankowski. I'm a Republican political consultant. And I have spent my career focused mainly on state elections uh, around the country. Um, did you grow up in a Republican family? I did not. I grew up in a Democrat family in Maryland. Uh, my grandfather was the head of his carpenter union, and uh, all my uh, entire family of Democrats. Uh, my grandmother, I believe, converted and was a Reagan Democrat. Uh, she shared that with me uh, and uh, in the 80s. I remember that moment, and uh, but otherwise, I uh, I went away to college as a pretty liberal Democrat and uh, came out a Republican. What happened? 
His answer was deeply boring, so I'm going to skip it. But I heard this, and you can hear him. He's pretty flat. He, you can tell he's a little bit nervous. And so sometimes one of my tactics is to tease the person um, and to like try to have fun with them. So I hear him say this about his family, and this is my response after he tells me that he, I let him ramble through his answer because I was like, he just needs to get this out of his system. And then this is, this is the next question that I asked him. Did you have to, like, slink home and say mom and dad I have something to tell you and I hope you'll still love me when I after I tell you this oh my my dad just couldn't believe I voted for Bush twice I mean he just he didn't want to believe it he told my sisters that Chris is just saying that he didn't actually vote for Bush really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I actually felt like I was coming out to my dad uh, like you know how the, the stereotypical sometimes they don't want to believe what they're hearing. It right. was it was just that dramatic. Yeah, I can imagine because you helped tip the entire country Republican. Are they proud of your accomplishments? Uh, you know, I don't. I they say they're proud, but I, I definitely think they uh, they just wish I was on the other team. I guess. Right. They're like, son, you're doing a great job for the wrong people. <laughs> exactly. I've actually heard exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I get a little bit of life out of him. I get this funny. So again, it's not going to be, it's the salt, not the steak. I think about that. This is the salt of the story. Like the steak of the story is how he gerrymandered the country. This is the seasoning, right? And this is just a little fun thing about Chris. It's also he's talking with some emotion. I went after that like six more times in the interview, just trying to make sure I get a moment that was fun, um, which is something I do when I'm teasing someone or trying to get something fun is I'll go after it a couple of different ways. Poor guy had to endure that the whole time. Um, just two more things quickly about this particular interview. I wanted to know, like, how did he become interested in states? And he said that he started out of law school at the attorney at a state attorney's general's, attorney general's office. Um, and it was during the tobacco litigation. And if you were not alive or don't remember, the way that big tobacco sort of got taken down-ish, um, they're still around, but was because state attorneys general, the federal government wouldn't do it. And so state attorneys general got together and filed like this massive lawsuit. And so he was at the attorney general's office when they were doing that. And he was like, oh, states have power. And so all of a sudden, I have a personal, and then he goes about working in the States, and I, he starts telling me stories where it's clear this guy has a chip on his shoulder. He's like, if only someone would just give me my tobacco moment, right? Um, and so I hear this, and I'm like, again, I, I'm hearing like a personal motivation for a really wonky abstract thing, and the story becomes about his quest. It has personal stakes. Um, and so the tobacco moment was sort of the mascot of the story, as was the junior varsity idea. Um, the last thing I want to point to in this particular interview is little things that people throw off that are not quite side doors that I'm going to spend a lot of time on, but I think about them as like the decoration of the room that we're in for the story. So like you might notice the picture on the wall, you might not, but it tells you it's like something more that brings them to life and makes you feel at home. I had asked him, you know, where... Where did you even get the idea? It's called Red Map, the thing that he did. And this was his answer. And he throws off one little thing that I just really loved and ended up in the story because it was decoration for who Chris is. Tell me, what's like the birthplace of Red Map? Is it three of you guys sitting in a conference room or did it just kind of evolve and come together in pieces and parts? Or what's, what's the birthplace of Red Map? In my mind, it was when I saw the New York Times story. Uh, and uh, of course... <laughs> 
I have to admit I read the New York Times, but um, <laughs> we forgive you. Uh, I, I did, and it was that Sunday. I believe it was a Sunday story uh, where they. I loved that he said that. It was just like he couldn't help himself. Like mm-hmm. Chris just like popped out for a second, and this is who he was. It's so small. It's so unimportant. It doesn't even qualify as salt, but it is just this little tiny thing that he said that breathes a little bit of life into who he is. Okay, let's do a quick lightning round, and then let's do questions. Um, all right. Okay. So in, I've been talking a lot about giving them something solid to bounce off of. Um, but sometimes you want to yes and them. So in improv, they say that like, if someone tells you something crazy, you don't say like, that's crazy. You just yes and them. Um, and there are situations where I think it is actually helpful to do this. And this is an example from a story that ran on This American Life. I, this is Ira Glass. And it's a story about a family that um, it was a brother and a sister, and they were they had a really terrible mother. So one summer they made up a family that they were going to go babysit for. They made up kids, they made up a mother, they made up a whole situation just so they could leave the house. And this is the brother at like 60 years old describing these kids who don't exist. And you'll hear Ira's response. And they they liked their parents very much, loved their parents. They were easy, they weren't spoiled in any way. and They sound like very special kids. Oh, yeah, they were great. Yeah, they were like no kids I ever met, really. Right? You hear his, uh, his fondness for kids that don't exist, because Ira was like, man, they sound really special. He wasn't like, hey, dude, fictional children you're speaking about, right? He just mm-hmm. like went with him on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing that I am looking for that is not necessarily narrative, but it does, again, breathe some life into it, is a moment on tape. Something happens between you and the person sitting across the table. Um, So I was doing a story for Reply All about this kid named Thomas Oscar who lives in Australia. I've never personally met him, um, which becomes important when you hear the tape. But he started a Facebook group for a fake corporate office because he was 16 and he thought that, like, literally thought that when you turn 28, you should just die because nothing good happens after 28. He was very obnoxious, but I loved him so much because I kind of like grumpy interviewees. Um, So he was going on and on telling us about how terrible adulthood was and about this office where they would mock grown-ups, this fake office where they would mock grown-ups. And in the middle of the interview, he turns it on me. And at first, I'm like, what is happening? And then I'm like, this is great. So I start egging him on. So how old did you say you were, like, in your 30s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you have, sorry, do you have, like, a live-in, do you have a live-in boyfriend? (laughs) No. (laughs) You don't. Oh, that's. I mean, you're halfway there. You have a fiance. Oh, mm, yeah. I think you're almost too far gone. Do you eat Chinese food on the reg? You just, you just totally judged me. I heard it in your voice. <laughs> All right. When you go, just quickly, when you go out to like a Thai restaurant, what dish do you order, and how spicy do you get it? A Thai restaurant. Yeah, I'm gonna guess you order the mild pad Thai. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, a glass of house wine. Am I right? Am I actually right? Uh, Nope. I get medium. I don't get spicy. I definitely don't get mild because mild doesn't taste any good. Yeah. What do I do do for fun? I know I'm just digging. um, (laughs) Tell me how lame I am. You live in New York, don't you? I do live in New York, Um, yeah. you, You try to avoid the city, I'm guessing. You catch the train and... You look around on the train every day and you just see everyone you hate and you just you feel physically repulsed. 
He's not wrong. Um, <laughs> this goes on, and I'm just like, and then I'm like, so what music do I listen to? And he's like, you definitely listen to Mumford and Sons. <laughs> which, like, here I am, he's embodying the idea of this story, which is like, I'm proving, like, you're over 28 and you're lame, and I'm going to ask you all the questions that prove that you're lame. I absolutely loved it. But at the end of this, this I was like, but what happens at the end of this? I let, I let him get it. I provoked him in getting this out of his system. Um, and then I said, like, what happens at 28? Like, what's happening to me at 28 that makes my life over? And then we had this really meaningful discussion about how what, what he saw as, like, what's meaningful all the way up to 28, and then what happens at 28. And it turned into actually a kind of thoughtful discussion. So I am listening for, like, moments that happen on tape in the... Um, um, gerrymandering story, I asked Chris Jankowski, what does REDMAP stand for? It's an acronym, and he couldn't remember. And we had this funny moment that ended up in the story, because it was like the easiest question I could have possibly asked him. Again, doesn't matter, but it's something that's happening between the two of you. All right, quickly, just a couple more. Something else I will do is reset the conversation. So if, especially if we've gone away from um, some of the from something concrete that I'm asking them to describe. Maybe I went down one of these side doors with them, and I want to get them back in that moment. I'm going to reset them. I'm going to say, OK, all right. So it was 1996, and your mom had just called you, and you were, had, were choking on orange juice. Tell me what happened next, right? So like maybe we had started there and gone away, but I want to get her back into it. So I will like summarize their story sometimes and say, OK, so this is where we're at. So then they're like hearing it, and like hopefully I'm helping them get back into that moment. So that's something I'll do. Another thing, and this goes to both of them, or this one clip goes to both of these ideas. Sometimes, I almost always start with more open-ended questions. Um, but if they're having a hard time expressing something, or if I'm hearing something, I might audition some ideas. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Was that funny, or was that sad? Or like, do you hate that person, or you like them? I can't. And so I'm auditioning ideas for them. What that does, sometimes, if they're having a hard time expressing it, helps them express it. It also gives them something to solid to bounce off of. And this will go to a point that I'm probably not going to spend much time on, but um, which is uh, saying something that's not quite right. <laughs> like, sometimes I'll audition ideas for them that I know are a little bit off, because they're asking them, how does that feel, is different than being like, that made you sad. And they want to, when they correct me, no, that made me mad. They're coming back at me with more emotion than if I'm like, how did that make you feel, right? Um, I want to play this good example of someone auditioning ideas, but also pointing at something that's happening in the situation. Instead of letting it just like stroll by, this is, you're in audio, not video, so like you need to point at the thing sometimes. So this is Brian Reed. Um, from This American Life talking to someone who is trying to evaluate whether or not to vote against something related to immigration. And you hear Brian hear the guy do something, and he points at it, and the guy can't express it, and he starts auditioning ideas for him. I'll just play a little bit of this. He assaulted hundreds of women in Cologne and other German cities. Again, the Cologne attacks, which had set Ben off on this journey. Cologne police chief Wolfgang Albers called it a completely new dimension of crime. And that's just the first one on the list. There are 19 pages here of stuff like that. <clears throat> Wait, why the... <clears throat> Could have let that pass. You just made. Oh, honestly, I'm... 
<laughs> I haven't really gone through a lot of this information since I used it and kind of going back through it again. I just, it, it's kind of. So he's dodging a little bit. So Brian starts auditioning. It's making me a little bit, you know, uneasy, a little bit upset. Trying to keep it under wraps, but. So wait, right now you're feeling upset and trying to like tamp it down. A little bit, yeah. You feel like you're feeling something ugly. When you read this stuff, you feel something ugly. I don't, yeah, and I don't, I don't like it. Like I said, I've read a lot. Did you feel scared of people? Honestly, he starts auditioning more things than I might audition. Uh (laughs) But um, what he's doing there is, and also sometimes people don't know exactly what they think, and so sometimes you're helping them tell their story. All right. I'm going to point out two other things really quickly, and then let's jump into questions. Um, I have gone into not quite right, teasing people, being the two-year-old, why, 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 especially if they're like not, if they're dodging the question or they're not being expressive, I'm just going to why the hell out of them. Um, and sometimes that gets them, if you're just like, if they have to like get smaller and smaller and smaller about the thing that they're talking about, it sometimes will help them. Another thing, um, the last clip that I'll play is sometimes I'll what if them. I'll put them in the hypothetical scenario that we're talking about. And I'll say, well, what if that thing was real? And this is with Ahmed, um, the person who got the baklava, talking about his brother. And I'm sure that Cameron had some stuff that he wanted to tell me before he disappeared, but there were no time. Right now, I have a thousand of questions if Cameron is here, but we have to manage. What would you ask him? Uh, <laughs> uh, like, why he cannot call my mom? He then goes on to talk about how he would get in a fight with Kamaran about what he had done, and then it leads us down this whole other path. So putting them in the, like, what if that thing you wanted or don't want happens. Um, Don't assume meaning. So when I ask Chris, what does it mean to you to be a Republican, especially if you think the meaning is obvious, ask about it. (laughs) Um, And then last but not least, shut up. Like, when you ask a hard question, just shut up sometimes and let them deal with the quiet space, because eventually they're probably going to come out with with something, especially um, if you're in a sort of confrontational interview and you need them to, to come back at, at you with something. All right. That was a lot. I am going to stop for questions. Hey, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts for doing kind of a sit, uh, an interview for an interview show versus for a narrative show and how that might adjust your techniques. I think I might be even more, uh, for lack of a better word, like prepared. Like these are the things I really want to get at because it depends on whether or not you're editing down your interview. If it's live, I've never done that. Um, but even if, it, if you're having to cut it down, it might be similar techniques, but maybe... I would pick my side doors more carefully. Because sometimes in these interviews, I mean, I can interview marathon interviews. Um, so I probably would go down fewer side doors, maybe be a, bit, a little bit more selective about what I jump off of. Um, but I might think more, try to be more clear in advance, like what exactly do I need to get out of this? Again, always still being flexible for what comes up, right? I don't know if that helps. Actually, could I ask a second quick one? 
um, techniques for building intimacy really quickly. Like if you only have 45 minutes with someone and you want to be able to go there um, fast. Um, I think, so you want them to be expressive quickly. Yeah. I do think start strangely, I mean, setting the tone up front of the informality and like immediately handing them some power and like this is what we're getting into. Do you have questions for me? That might help them settle into it a little bit. And then I would start with the concrete stuff. Like, because that almost always will get them to a space where they're like, it, they're in their bones a little bit more. Um, so probably that's what I would do. I'm not good at 45 minute interviews. <laughs> Anyone else? Hi, I have one here. Ah, hi. Thank you so much for this. So I'm, um, uh, I'm, I've just started a new job where I'm going to be working with a new host. Okay. At my old job, I worked. I used to work at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and she was like a veteran interviewer. I'm now going to be working with a new host who I'm not used to, and I want to coach them on all of what you've just taught us. And I wonder if you have tips for um, producing a new host and trying to ease them into so much of what you know so intimately as an interviewer yourself. How to deal with hosts, man, that's a whole other session. I'm a host, I can say that. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, it, one thing that's going to maybe happen with this person, I don't know, is they're going to feel defensive about what they don't know. So I would gauge that first. And if they're open and like, I want to learn, I might sit down and listen through. I might play for them interviews that you think are, have gone well and just point out, like, these are things that I think really work. Um, you might have them do sort of, I mean, again, how humble they're willing to be, like practice interviews. Um, I think that might be maybe just having them listen through some interviews and pointing at some things might be useful. So good luck. <laughs> Becoming such a masterful interviewer, how has that affected your life and relationships outside of work? <laughs> I honestly think that I have always been the two-year-old. <laughs> um, I don't know, you would really have to ask the people in my life. Uh, maybe I'm more sensitive to what to pick up on, like, because I'm used to like reading the room. Sometimes you're like producing the conversation in your head, like, that's not interesting, can we move on? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think I was always, I'm a little bit naturally wired to do this weird thing, to be this person, so I'm not sure. I'll give you my sister's phone number. Uh -huh. <laughs> Someone. Hi. Hi. I'm interested in pre-interviews and how much you ask then that you, and, and like how much you leave for the actual interview. I leave anything that has some, so in a pre-interview, I want to, I'm doing the assessment, like is this a good talker? I hate that, but is this a good talker? Um, I'm trying to get them to mostly stick to the facts of a situation. Um, as soon as they get into something weird and wonderful and emotional, I'm like, stop talking. Some literally, sometimes they'll keep talking. I'll be like, no, really, like, I really want to get this on tape. It feels rude, but do it. Because there's not going to be as much juice the second time. When you get to juice, stop. <laughs> hey, how do you handle when you're interviewing two people, one who's really forthcoming and one who's very reserved? So I recently interviewed a mother and a daughter, and the mother was wanting to talk about everything, but the daughter kept cutting her off. Ah, um, don't. <laughs> like, I honestly, I might do the interview that way, but I would, if I'm going to interview two people together, I always interview them also separately. And I think I would do the separate interviews first if I can. 
Um, and maybe, it depends on the dynamic, like what it, what it is I think I'm gonna have a problem with with the interviewees, um, but I would also interview them separately. Um, and also sometimes I'll say, I will be direct, like that is so good, but like I might joke with her if it's the daughter interrupting the mom, you know, like I know you don't want your mom to tell all of your secrets, but I really, you know, come on, like we gotta let mom talk or something. I probably would do some teasing in that interview. I think that's probably a terrible strategy, but I do it a lot. I was wondering if you have any other go-to warm-up questions other than like, is this what you always wanted to do? Because I think those are really helpful and sometimes I have trouble coming up with them. Um, I will usually start into chronology, maybe. Um, after that, and just to get them, because also the thing about chronology is these are, they're, they're like probably sitting in their chair being like, what is she gonna ask me and do I know the answer to these questions? They know the answer to those questions typically, so it also, it sounds really basic, but like asking them chronology questions, like they know the answer to that. And so that, that's probably the second thing I do in terms of warming them up, if that helps. All right, hi. Um, I do long-form um, conversation interviews, and one of the things I've noticed when I'm listening back to them is that I'll often adopt some of the speech patterns um, uh, of the person I'm speaking with, and it does create intimacy, but it can also be a huge problem. Like if I'm speaking to a rambler, I will <laughs> ramble, or I'll get less expressive if the other person isn't giving me... Do you have any way, especially like deep into an interview, to, to kind of check yourself and say, uh-oh, don't, don't do that thing. Yes. I'm from Texas, and whenever I interview someone from the South, I start drawing. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm y'all, I'm y'all, y'all, y'all. It's like so annoying. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would say, so if you're in a situation where you see the conversation going off the rails, or they're super nervous, or you're being like they are, I will uh, have a technical difficulty um, just so that I can pause the conversation. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I need to talk to the engineer for a second. Something's going on. I mean, I'm not going to flat out lie to them, um, but I'll like fiddle with the volume on the recorder. I'm sorry, I got to fix the levels because what that does is it just gets you to stop and like ground yourself. If I hear them being really nervous, I might also need suddenly need to go to the bathroom. Um, so that they, because they'll start in, and when they start in, they have so much nervous energy, and I want to give them a moment to like breathe again. So if I see that, I might like have some personal or technical difficulty. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that you'll sometimes give people the option to, like you'll say, if you said something that you regret, we can have a conversation. Uh -huh. I was wondering if you could talk about a time that you've had to negotiate a conversation like that. Um, They will often tell me in the interview, it's rare that they come back after the interview, but if they do, I can't think of a thing right off the top of my head, but what, when they, if someone does say it in the interview or if it comes up, the question I'm first asking myself is how important is this to the interview? If it's not important and they're really worried, if it's salt, not steak, I almost will, always will let it go. If they're a public official, I have to say, or someone who's a, like a corporate executive, you're not getting a, almost any leeway from me. Um, but if you're just a human who agreed to talk to me, um, I'm gonna do that. I can give you two examples of 
places where I gave someone leeway. There, I did a story about the world's largest treehouse, which just burned down, sadly. Um, and the guy who built it built it for 20 years. Um, and his wife, understandably, felt a little neglected. And I talked to her, and she was talking so, they live in this really tiny town in Tennessee, and she was talking so much shit about her neighbors. And I was like, oh my god, you can't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> so I, without talking to her, consciously made the decision, like, it is interesting to the story to see like what it was doing to her relationships, but if that goes in the story, then she's in trouble with her neighbors in this really small town. And it wasn't central to the story, so I left it out. Hey, over here, thank Hi. you. So uh, we also do long form interviews in our show and we're on a broadcast clock on an AM station, so it's 12, 12, 12, and 10. You know, so we've got really tight segments and we're always trying to leverage those segments to think about the beats that we're trying to hit. Yeah. As I'm hearing you talk about sit, skim, and... Uh, and skip. Skip. Um, it sounds like you are much more open-ended in your process. As you're thinking about your interview process, are you thinking about the beats that you're trying to hit? Are you thinking about, here's a signpost, here's a signpost, or are you just letting the people talk and you're fixing it in the edit? Like, what is the process for organizing that as the interview is going? I am much more deliberate. So when I, before I started working at This American Life, Ira is actually a very linear human um, and a linear, pretty linear interviewer. And so he really, really pushed me to like know what I'm looking for. I did not go into that job as that person. Um, but I will sometimes even write, like, here's what this story might look like in the end. Okay, so based on that, what do I need to get from them? So I would, especially if you have a time limit, I would be pretty clear on, like, what's the, what's the meat of this and try to go there. Hi. Um, just, uh, I'm wondering, you know, when you're in a situation where you don't know who you're going to interview, you're going to the scene of something that's just happened, or you're, you know, uh, they're saying, oh, give us a story about what the election's like in Aspen. You just arrive. How do you prepare for that? Um, well, I've never done that, thank God. Um, I am not that person. But maybe what I would do is think about, like, there's a reason they've asked you for that, right? So you, you're going up in complete hypotheticals. Like, they want it for, they've asked you to get this interview for some reason because they want to understand something. And so I would just think about, like, what is it about that thing that people, but that my editor is trying to get me to understand? and that your questions are gonna start broad. Like, they wanna know if this person is losing, the reason they've sent you out there to the fire is to find out if they've lost everything and if they're gonna be able to run their business anymore. What business are you in? Like, what were you doing before? What do you think you'll be able to do after? I don't know, I would be terrible at this. But I would just think about, like, there is a reason they've asked you to go there and I would back it out from there. What are, like, the three things I can get from them? Thank you. Uh, quick question, which is, these, these interviews can be fairly long. You hear a side door, you think, oh, that might be a mascot. Are you jotting notes while you're trying to maintain eye contact if it's in person? How are you tracking what you may want to go back and ask more about? If or it's are you just brilliant. No, no, no. <laughs> Not, no. Uh, sometimes if I'm in a studio, it's easier if I'm in a studio and I don't have to break the moment. Uh, if it's... If, there's, if we're having a moment, I will try to hold it in my head until the moment has kind of passed, and then I'll write it down. Um, sometimes I will go at the side door as soon as I hear it. Um, it's a judgment call, sadly. Um, hi. Um, 
So my producer and I will sometimes have difference of opinion on like interview style, if you will. And for him, it's much more like, you know what we need. So like, let's get it. And like, let's redirect the conversation if it's straying. And I'm much more of the, well, if I interrupt, then you might, sometimes you miss that gold when you just kind of like let them sit and like develop what they're thinking. Um, So how do you maneuver that? When do you interrupt and redirect? And when do you sit back? Um, I'm going to give the most annoying answer of all time, which is it just, it depends. Um, If I, okay, so with a rambler, sometimes uh, if it feels like they just need to get it out of their system, and then if I ask again, they'll give me something more succinct, I might just let them run with it. If it's a rambler who has shown no signs of stopping, I will interrupt. (laughs) And just the biggest tip ever, blame your editor. Like, really, I'll be like, I'm sorry, I really have to get this thing. If I don't go back with this thing, my editor's gonna kill me. Anyway, so it's a little bit of a judgment call. I'm also trying to feel like, are we getting to an emotion? That's a point where I don't really wanna stop it. I didn't say this, but like, obviously, I think you're gonna save the harder and more emotional questions for the end. I wanna get them enough through the concrete stuff so they're like swimming in that world so that when I ask them what it means, they're not just like, it was great, or it was awful. Um, I don't know if that's useful, hi. Hi, thank you for being here and for all of your information. Um, I recently (laughs) interviewed someone about their experience riding the bus in Detroit, and um, during the interview, I asked this person a question about, oh, what year was that when you were having that experience? Mm-hmm. And I ran into like these roadblocks with her after that because she had these insecurities about her age. Oh. And she would not tell me precisely when the things she was, was saying were happening. And I did not know how to deal with that. Mm. And I'm really curious if you have experiences like that, if you have before and how you kind of dealt with this personal thing that really started to take over and huh. upon your That's frustrating. I think the question I would ask myself is how much does it matter? I don't know enough about the story to know how much it matters to know how old she is or exactly when it happened. If it really matters, I would be direct and just say like, I can't do this story. I can't have you in the story. And it's not because I want to know how old you are. <laughs> it's just because I have to situate it in a time um, if it matters to the story, it might be it might be make or break, but also there might be ways around it. But that's probably the first question I'm going to ask myself is how much it matters to the particular story. Hi, very quickly, you just said how you thought that even the first phone call was important. I was wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, I think um, the thing I'm thinking about mostly with that is when I'm trying to convince someone to talk to me who might be sharing something sensitive. And that's the point at which I am very explicitly saying, like, if you, I will always, with that kind of person, I will say, I will talk to you off off the record first if you want to. And I will say directly so that you can vet me. So I'm telling them, like, you have power in this situation and I'm going to be explicit about it. I'm not going to be sneaky about it because, like, I know a little bit more about the rules of journalism, but I'm going to tell you the rules. Um, and so I will offer to do off-the-record interviews. I will, depending on what they're telling me, if it's very sensitive, I will agree to discuss things that they told me that made them nervous, that they're worried about. Um, so it's just signaling. And I will directly say, like, I know your life goes on after I publish this story, and I don't want your life to be ruined <laughs> by this story. So let's have a conversation if you're nervous about what you said. Does that help? Hi. 
Hi. Um, I was wondering, for stories in, um, for which you're following characters over a long period of time yeah. and getting to know them, and they're like opening up and sharing all these personal things, how do you end that relationship in a way where they don't feel like a story has been extracted, or especially if they think that you're they're so friendly and and yeah, how do you how do you end that relationship? It's so hard. This uh, kidnapping story I followed for four years. Um, sometimes, as a journalist, you have to turn off. There's it's not a real conversation, and like I think, meaning like you are a journalist asking somebody for their story. This isn't. You, it is an extraction, and I think you have to be clear about that. I think it helps to make sure that they're clear about it. I was listening to somebody's Third Coast, Coast Talk who does a lot of those kinds of things, and he said that even if I'm going out to lunch with them, I have my notebook on the table, so they're always clear, like, this is the relationship that we're in. It doesn't feel good. I just have to, like, it doesn't feel good. Like, because if you do something for four years, like, I was heartbroken. Because we didn't, when I started, I didn't know if Cameron would be, he had just been kidnapped. I didn't know if he would be found. Um, but I would just be explicit. It's, it's hard. It's hard. But I think it is the nature of what you're doing. Um, and skirting around it isn't going to help, sadly. Um, hi. Um, you talked about using clues to help the listener feel kind of like an insider. Yeah. And I was just curious, I mean, something in that is there's kind of an implied, you're not having everything be really straightforward, right? You want to have the story unfold in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if or, or how in the process afterwards that you've made the story, is it just the editor who's listening to to feel like, hey, somebody can follow this? Or sometimes I find that so many people are so already involved in the details of the story that they may not be able to hear it as a fresh listener. Like, how, how do you address that? You mean like with your editor? Yeah, just like if the editor knows knows about the clues already, knows how this, knows all the details of the story, they may, it's like somebody, they can follow along because they already know. Yeah, they know what the baklava means right. without all of the context because they've heard the story so many times. Yeah, so like is there this, is there a, do you ever have like an outsider listen who doesn't know anything about this? This is like, this is institutionalized at, so uh, at This American Life and also, I don't remember how Radiolab did it, but, and also at Planet Money, at This American Life you start with just you, one other person, and Ira, and then every edit after that, someone comes in who's never heard the story before. Um, I think that's extremely useful. You will miss things if you don't have someone who has never heard it. Because also things get cut in the process of editing, and you like forget that it, it mattered. And like all of a sudden, you pulled out like that Kamran was his older brother, and like all of a sudden, Ahmed doesn't make any sense anymore, <laughs> right? Bad example, but yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you guys so much for coming. Woo!